So far in I Hate Wrestling, everything we've talked about has been pretty traditional stuff. By that I mean it's supposed to simulate a combat sport with all the attendant tropes. There's sponsors and instant replay and backstage interviewers who'd love it if they could just get a word. There's artistic license as far as the actual athleticism goes, but it's supposed to be happening in our world. It does what Rocky does, if that makes sense. But what if that wasn't your narrative template? What if you took the collaborative performance art of wrestling and did something else with it? Folks have tried. Kaiju Big Battle is absurdist comedy drawing on Japanese science fiction. Deathmatch wrestling abandons all pretense of legitimacy in favor of sheer, gruesome spectacle. Today, we're going to talk about a unique product that blends traditional Mexican lucha libre with film noir pretense and Hollywood production values. Basically, Lucha Underground is a sleazy telenovela about a Mexican wrestling promotion against a background of magical realism, all taking place in an unassuming Los Angeles warehouse. At night, that warehouse becomes the temple where masked wrestlers quite literally become forces of nature locked in eternal combat like ancient gods. A lot of crazy stuff has gone down within the temple, but one rivalry has literally been a life-and-death affair. In one corner, it's a barrel-chested brute with an uncanny affinity for death. In the other, a fiery young man who refuses to stay down. It's the man of a thousand lives against the man of a thousand deaths, waging a bloody battle that wouldn't be finished until one man was literally sealed inside a casket. Today, on I Hate Wrestling, it's Mil Muertes versus Phoenix. Grave Consequences. So happy to be here. I'm very happy that this that we're about to do this show. I'm feeling very good about this. Are you feeling good about this? Yeah, I feel good about it. Good. It's good to feel good. So, Julian, the first question I have to ask you is do you in fact hate wrestling? Um, I don't hate wrestling. Uh, well, you have to leave the show right now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming. <laughs> no. Okay, so you don't you don't hate wrestling. Do you have uh, do you have feelings of any kind about wrestling? Um, well, I guess I never thought too much about it before I, like, spoke to you. I also know one other person that's really into wrestling, and they've, like, spoken a lot about it at length, and I never really thought too deeply about it. I grew up in a pretty, like, strict household, so, like, wrestling was... I wasn't, like, allowed to watch wrestling as a kid. <laughs> it's too is, rowdy. Too <laughs> rowdy. <laughs> yeah, so... You're gonna get to roughhousing is what's gonna happen. <laughs> So, um, for that reason, I've never, like, thought too much about it, but I was super into, like, heroes and, like, comic books and that sort of thing, so, um, I think that there's, like, a lot of overlap in terms of, like, the archetypes that show up and the sort of, like, character development through, like, combat and warriorship that I think is really interesting, and this particular show, Lucha Underground, um, sort of grabbed my attention for reasons that we'll get into more later, but I find the whole sort of, like, overarching story of like Aztec mysticism and sort of like spiritual warriorship to be really, really, really fascinating. Yeah, that's, that's definitely true of Lucha Underground. Lucha Underground is something that is definitely, there are some things that are very traditional about Lucha Underground and there are certain things that are very non-traditional about Lucha Underground as far as mainstream American wrestling is concerned. Mm -hmm. Mainstream American wrestling is designed to be a sports facsimile. 
Mm-hmm. Right? It's designed to resemble a show about a sport. It's yeah. supposed to mimic boxing or mixed martial arts or, or etc. Lucha Underground is something different. It uses the same performance art to tell a different kind of story. Mm-hmm. And you kind of hit the nail on the head when you talked about uh, superheroes. It's a very sort of superheroic mm-hmm. show, and the, the narratives are very much that way. And the archetypes are very supernatural. I mean, that takes it that takes its cue from not traditional American wrestling, but traditional Mexican wrestling. Mm-hmm. Lucha Libre. I don't know how familiar you are, familiar you are with Lucha Libre outside of Lucha Underground, but it's very similar in terms of you know the bright costumes, mm-hmm. animal motifs. Instead of taking its cues from you know real athletes, you know, you want the wrestlers to look like real athletes. They're more comic book archetypes and they're uh, you know there's a guy Atlantis and he's the man from the bottom of the sea and you have uh, well of course Lucha Underground has the people we're going to talk about today Mil Muertes and Phoenix mm. so you've watched a little bit of yeah. Lucha Underground yeah I've, I've been introduced to Mil Muertes I've been introduced to Phoenix okay so you know these guys but you haven't seen them intersect just yet right um I think you said episode six, so I think yeah. they might have intersected once, once. briefly. Yeah. yeah. And that's where Phoenix kind of gets a fluke win yeah. over Mil Muertes. Yeah. And that's the first time we see Mil Muertes lose. Yeah. Before this, he's essentially unstoppable. Right. So we saw him, I think in episode two, he wrecks Blue Demon Jr. Right. Who's a legitimate like legend. legend. Yeah. Yeah. He, his father was... Blue Demon Senior, as you might imagine, Blue <laughs> Demon the First, who was one of the all-time greats of Lucha Libre. So to have this guy on your show and basically get murked by Mil Muertes yeah. is a, a pretty strong endorsement for Mil Muertes. Right. They're putting him on a very high level right off the bat. And then he goes on to wreck a, no, a number of other people pretty spectacularly. Yeah. And so they establish him as sort of the premier guy to beat. Mm. Like in uh, an irresistible force, right? Mm. Or maybe the immovable object. Mm. I'm not sure which one he is. I think he's maybe the immovable object. And then Phoenix, I think, we meet in episode two, uh, two, and that's in the triple threat yeah. with Drago and Pentagon Jr. Yeah. And I believe Phoenix wins that match. And these two guys, immediately, we should talk about, I guess you'd say they're totemic Right. significance right. aside, these two people could not be more physically different. Right. Mil Muertes is, like, barrel-chested. Right. He looks like... I don't know. I don't think they make guys with this physique anymore. <laughs> 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 you know, he looks like somebody who would be menacing Sean Connery as James Bond. Right. Just like this sort of... I don't think you could make... You could push his arms all the way down <laughs> to his sides. And he... And their fighting styles are completely different, too. Yes. Mil Muertes is almost like... Uh, Again, a throwback. Like he he throws these big, like theatrical hooks. Yeah. And Phoenix, like, liter- super athletic, yeah, and, like, literally flies. Yeah. Literally flies like a fucking bird. Yeah. And Mil Muertes, like if you flew at him like a bird, he would just punch you out of the air. <laughs> <laughs> so they're they're diametric opposites, but also a cool thing that Lucha Underground does. They do a fantastic job of this. They set up their characters' backstories and explain sort of their archetypal significance with yeah. these little vignettes, yeah. like these little movie trailers. Yeah. So uh, what did you think of the the sort of origin story for Mil Muertes? 
Yeah, I thought that that was really fascinating. Um, that uh, he had there was like this terrible earthquake, and a uh, real earthquake, by yeah, the way. Yeah. yeah, and he lost his whole family, and from that moment, like death rather than scaring him, sort of comforted him, and that's when you know a thousand deaths, sort of like his name is this continual kind of like reconnection to this like traumatic like childhood story um, that like hardened him and sort of made him this like unstoppable uh, figure. Right. So his closeness to death gives him this sort of invulnerability to fear, yeah. but also some kind of supernatural connection with the afterlife. Right. Right? His closeness to death makes him unkillable. Right. Kind of. Right. I guess. They don't get into the they don't get into the nuts and bolts of it, which I think is probably wise. You don't want to get too wrapped up in the rules of how all of this works. Right. Otherwise you kind of lose the lose the plot. But there's also the significance of you you mentioned there was an earthquake, he's buried in the rubble, and that brings us to Katrina, mm. who is this kind of psychopomp figure. Right, right, right. Who appeared to this little boy in the rubble while he's trapped in there with the bodies of his family. Right. And sort of drew him out of the rubble and brought him back to the, the world of the living mm. and also gave him this chunk of rock. That he, yeah, it's like... Right, that is this sort of reminder of his closeness with death. Mm. And she carries it around. Yeah, and gives it to him before the fights. Right, yeah. Afterwards. Right, and there's... That stone is very significant in a literally inexplicable way. They can't explain what the stone does. Mm. Is it... Does that give her the power to control Mil Muertes? Mm. It's like, is it his soul? Is it her soul? We don't mm. know. But the stone is important. And it's it symbolizes something. It has something to do with... Uh, Mil Mortes and his relationship with death in the afterlife, and he trusts her mm. to control it. Right. So they have this. Uh, they have this relationship where he will destroy somebody, and then she, she lick his face. Yeah. She well, she licks the face of his fallen opponent. Yeah. And then licks him. Yeah. And they sort of imply that in a, I guess, Mortal Combat kind of way, this has transferred their soul to him. Mm. I guess mm. is that what's going Whoa, on? Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Is it like a Shang Tsung situation? <laughs> that I don't know. The the most distracting thing is Matt Stryker, who's my least favorite part of the show. <laughs> the the one announcer who's just like, oh, I love when she licks their faces. Right, like, right, 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 like, right. Matt Stryker, can you please stop? Like, <laughs> I don't want to hear your audio boners about this. <laughs> this match, by the way, has one of my... You might have noticed that Matt Stryker gets... He loves his thesaurus. Yeah. And he will say things that nobody in their right mind would ever say. <laughs> this man abuses the English language. <laughs> this match involves a casket. Okay. And when the casket is being wheeled out, Matt Stryker says, There you see the funerary box, the casket, if you will. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we will. Everybody will. Nobody calls it a funerary box. <laughs> so... Yeah, I've, I've, I've spoiled it a little bit by, by mentioning that this match involves a casket, but before we get into sort of the specifics of how this rivalry blossomed yeah. from this sort of small, uh, small confrontation that they yeah. had, we should also talk about Phoenix. I'm pretty sure in the early goings they don't explain too much about Phoenix and his, uh, his sort of backstory. Yeah. But... And I think that the main thing that I got um, was that his name Phoenix says in a lot of his matches he like is down 
they hit the ground twice, mm-hmm. and then he, like, jumps back up. So it's this idea of, like, returning from the ashes, right? Like, yes, yes. He's very hard to keep down. Yeah. So Mil Mortes is hard to put down. Mm-hmm. Phoenix is hard to keep, keep down. down. Yeah. So they have this interesting sort of contrasting style of immortality, right? You can't kill Mil Mortes, but you can kill Phoenix over and over and over again. And it right, 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 right. <laughs> so... In a way, they're natural rivals. Uh, they're they're complete physical opposites. Right. I mean, in every way. But Mil Muertes is like, you know, in his early 40s. Phoenix, at the time that this match takes place, is only like 23 years old. Right. Which always makes me feel bad about myself. <laughs> my accomplishments and physical abilities. <laughs> but, yeah, Phoenix is super young. He's just this next-level athlete. And irresistible force, immovable object, not sure which is which. Maybe they're both. Maybe both are irresistible and immovable. I don't know, but the question is, which one gives way first? Mm. This sort of juggernaut that just keeps coming mm. versus this person who keeps getting back up. Mm. So we have that with diametric opposition. And then we introduce the element of Katrina, mm. who is, like I said before, kind of a psychopomp, mm. she, because she brought Mil Muertes back from the dead. I don't mean to spoil something for you. I guess I'm going to spoil something for you since we're jumping ahead a little bit. But at some point, Mil Muertes loses a couple steps. He's kind of psyched out by the fact that he lost to Phoenix. Mm. So he loses, I think, another match that he shouldn't have and takes it out on Katrina. Mm. So he basically grabs her by the throat and she appears to be in some type of jeopardy and Phoenix runs out to the ring and rescues her. Mm. So they tease this sort of thing where, okay, now Katrina is going to be with Phoenix, and she's going to uh, manage Phoenix, and maybe be in a relationship with Phoenix. Mm. Her, the nature of her relationship with Mil Muertes is unclear. Right. Like, there are definite sexual under- and overtones to it. Right. But it's never it's never established that these two are in any kind of established relationship, only that something weird is going on, and it may not be for mortal understanding. Mm-hmm. But after Mil Muerte starts to unravel a little bit, Katrina sides with Phoenix, and now in a jealous rage, Mil Muerte is targeting Phoenix, mm-hmm. and he wants to destroy Phoenix and put him down for good. Mm. So that sets the stage for this match, which is called Grave Consequences. Mm. Now, I know you said you weren't super familiar with uh, with American pro wrestling. Do you know who The Undertaker is? Yes. Okay. I I, I'm assuming uh, if Julian's familiar with The Undertaker, most of y'all are familiar with The Undertaker too. <laughs> he's kind of, <laughs> he's, one of the, he's one of the big ones. I don't know if he'd be on the Mount Rushmore of pro wrestling, but he's definitely in like What's like Mount Rushmore with a couple more faces? Um, Statue of Liberty or something? I guess, <laughs> I guess if if Hulk Hogan, The Rock, Stone Cold Steve Austin, and John Cena are Mount Rushmore, The Undertaker is the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> or maybe he's like maybe he's like that Statue of Crazy Horse. I don't know. <laughs> also carved into a mountain. Maybe he's the Hoover Dam. I don't know. <laughs> but no, he. You know what he is? He's like he's the mausoleum at Halicarnassus because he's. He's, he's, he's dark and scary. <laughs> and doesn't it all look like Kelsey Grammer? He does. <laughs> he super looks like goth Kelsey Grammer. Uh, I think that's come up before. 
But yes, The Undertaker is a very famous guy, and his signature match is the casket match. Mm-hmm. And in a casket match, the only way to win is to put your opponent inside a casket that has been helpfully wheeled to ringside and close the lid. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, in a casket match, I assume this is artistic license, when you close the lid, uh, the person just stays in there. Okay. And then they, like, wheel the casket backstage. Okay. It's not like the Undertaker has knocked you out and put you in the casket. Like, right. he can just force you in there and close the lid, and then it's like, hey, it's over. Okay. They, because they he'll try to put you in the casket, and then they'll, like, try to fight and, like, kick and scream and try to get out. Right. But as soon as the lid's closed, <laughs> I don't know. All yeah, resistance like, is futile. Right. So, I don't know. Well, do not go gentle into that good night, I suppose. <laughs> This is this is the only wrestling podcast where you're going to get Dylan Thomas references, everybody. <laughs> so once the lids close, it's over. I guess it's just artistic license. But in Lucha Underground, where we have real supernatural shit going down, mm. the implication is that when you are sealed inside the casket, you literally die. Oh, shit. Yeah, so in Lucha Underground, the casket is taken to ringside by the sort of Day of the Dead spirits. Mm including some guys on stilts. It's very mm-hmm. weird. And then these same spirits take the casket and take it away, and they, like, flood the uh, flood the, the temple. The, the Lucha Underground Arena is called the Temple, everybody, because it's, uh, it's actually, like, a repurposed Los Angeles area warehouse, but the implication is that is it's, it's an Aztec temple where blood sacrifices are performed. Essentially, the wrestling matches are a kind of blood sacrifice, right. which <laughs> is doing something for someone. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, I mean, I mean, you talk about that a little bit more later too, but it, it's basically set up so that the audience, they're called the believers, yes. right? There's this interesting relationship between the wrestlers and the audience that when the wrestlers are trying to like gather information, um, like to be hyped up, Yes. Uh, there's almost like a type of like energy transfer that sort of revitalizes them to like continue to fight. Right. And that there's like significance to the seal at the center of the... Um, the ring, right? Uh, that's like sort of traditional, like Aztec uh, calendar type symbol, and it, yeah, we can talk more about that because I think that the temple itself is supposed to be this like archetypal, um, like ritual chamber of ascension. But it, essentially, ascension is a uh, like symbolized by uh, the money that's at stake. Like, because uh, a lot of these wrestlers, they like come from like the barrios, and they're generally like very poor people. So it's like this is your this is your way out, like out of the underworld. Right. Uh, both in a class sense, but then also in, like, a literal kind of, like, you know. I mean, I think that um, Dario Cueto is kind of like a double figure. Oh, I love Dario tarot. Cueto. Yeah. He is so good. Yeah. Dario Cueto is one of the greatest NPCs in the history of pro wrestling. Yeah. Like, this guy is 10 pounds of ham in a 5-pound bag, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> like, the, the king of all of, his, all of his outbursts has to be ladder match. Yeah. We're going to have... Ladder match! <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love Dario Cueto and his sort of the impatience that he has for yeah. running a supernatural film noir wrestling promotion. <laughs> like, he seems to really hate it, yeah. which is amazing. Nobody's forcing you to do this, Dario. <laughs> like, there are a million other jobs. You didn't have to do this. <laughs> and people come in and they're like, like, hey, Dario, I need to fight like, for example, King Cuerno, who's, like, the big game hunter luchador, yeah. he'll come into Dario Cueto's office and be like, hey, I need to fight Drago because I'm trying to steal his mask and mount it on my wall in my hunting cabin. And Dario just, like, rolls his eyes, and he's like, fine, you can have a match. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, you could have just... 
you could have just hired regular wrestlers. <laughs> you didn't have to hire all spooky supernatural guys. <laughs> but I love the idea that you would hire all of these crazy supernatural characters and then get annoyed when their beefs <laughs> get all weird and supernatural. <laughs> and in the early goings, he's he's sort of antagonizing Johnny Mundo a lot. Right. Who's the most visible white guy right. on the on the roster. This is definitely the brownest pro wrestling roster. Yeah on U.S. television by a damn sight. Yeah. Like, there's there's John uh, John Mundo and Son of Havoc, and uh, eventually you get Cage, but most of them are people of color. Right. Which is very refreshing, because a lot of pro wrestling is, you know, six-foot-three hairless white guys. Right. With bad tribal tattoos. <laughs> and <that's, laughs> and Johnny Mundo is an interesting figure, because he's an established WWE guy. Right. And he sort of steps into this world. He's the the Johnny Cage, mm-hmm. right, to follow the Mortal Kombat analogy. Because there is a lot of Mortal Kombat to right. Lucha Underground. Right. And he's the Johnny Cage character where he's, like, rich and famous but wants to prove himself in this sort of secret world mm-hmm. where the stakes are much higher. Right. Uh, despite the fact that, like, there's the thing where the ladder match you get $10,000. Like, right. that guy is definitely a millionaire in real life because right. he was on WWE television for, like, 12 years. So right. he's definitely got a couple million dollars in the bank. He doesn't need to be fighting a Panther guy <laughs> <laughs> and, like, a giant Nick Fury guy right. over $10,000. Right. Like, he doesn't need to be doing that. But there's something about the temple, mm-hmm. the energy of the temple mm-hmm. and the atmosphere of the temple creates this weirdly high stakes. It's like it's like magical realism, right, mm-hmm. within the temple. Things happen within the temple that don't happen in the outside world. Right. And because of the suspension of disbelief, it's interesting that they're called the believers because they have to suspend their disbelief. Right, 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 right. Not only are they believers because they call it, they're believers because it's called the temple and it's kind of like a little joke, but also they are buying into mm-hmm. this, I don't know if you call it an augmented reality or mm-hmm. an alternate reality, yeah. but they are suspending the disbelief you're not asked to suspend in, right. in regular American wrestling. They're right. trying to make it as realistic as possible in right. mainstream wrestling. And here they're saying, well, you're already suspending your disbelief on some things. Right. Let's take it another 10 steps further. Right. It would be interesting to compare this to an Undertaker casket match because it's really night and day. Mm-hmm. That's just like a regular pro wrestling match where there's a casket at the end. And this is way more mm-hmm. uh, integrated into right, the right, narrative right, right. of the match and into the the reality of the show. Before you watched Lucha Underground, did you have any preconceived notions about what pro wrestling was? Um, I think I just sort of thought pro wrestling was... Uh, I, like, assumed that the storyline was this just very shallow excuse to watch dudes, like, beat the shit out of each other. Right. And uh, I guess I thought, it, I thought of it as a more kind of, like... Like, a more theatrical version of, like, pro boxing. Which, for whatever reason, I wasn't allowed to watch wrestling as a kid, but I could watch boxing. So, <laughs> so I saw a lot of boxing. And I guess the main point of focus was just on, like, the moves and who does what and, like, how, like, who wins. Right. right. Uh, I didn't necessarily think that wrestling would have this whole, like, multi-layered backstory to it. And I find Lucha Underground to be particularly interesting because the storyline is presented in a way that if I were, like, a 12-year-old boy, I would be 
it would be interesting and I could follow it, but it's like as an adult, I can watch it and there's so many layers to it. So I think it really straddles an audience as far as like age group is concerned because there's really a lot to the story and a lot more than what meets the eye. And uh, unlike boxing, which, you know, it's fascinating, but it's mainly just more like display of skills than this like unfolding story. Right. One of the, one of the interesting things about, about pro wrestling and to compare it to boxing as its sort of closest analog is that you have the ability in pro wrestling to tell the story that you want to tell. In a boxing match, you don't always get the ideal ending. Mm. Sometimes, uh, you're saying you were watching boxing growing up. I'm sure you saw a lot of Mike Tyson fights. Yeah, of course. Mike Tyson beat everybody in two seconds. (laughs) Right? Like, that's not satisfying. Right. In pro wrestling, you have the ability to tell a story where you could have a guy like Mike Tyson who's laying waste to everybody in his path until he comes across the guy who he can't lay waste to, which eventually does happen. Mike Tyson did lose, but it's not as narratively satisfying if you don't get to pick the moment when it happens. Right. We fixate on these moments in sports where, you know, there's that famous moment of the U.S., hockey team beating the, the Russian hockey team, mm. the, the miracle on ice, right? Mm. And something like that is so narratively satisfying because it seems like a movie, mm. right? Because mm. you wouldn't believe it could happen in reality. The advantage of pro wrestling is that you can make that happen. Right. You can move all of these pieces to make all the cool stuff happen at the perfect time. Right. And that's why it's kind of frustrating when they don't always do it. Lucha Underground usually does it. Right. Lucha Underground usually makes the right things happen at the right time. Right. And I guess to follow that analogy... Mil Muertes is Mike Tyson, mm. right? And Phoenix is this sort of archetypal person. You know, styles make fights. Yeah. And Phoenix has the exact style to put up a fight that Mil Muertes doesn't have from anybody else. Mm. So it's not necessarily to say that just because Phoenix can beat Mil Muertes that he is the best and he can beat anybody. Right, right, right. But It's just that this is his, like, enter the system away. Right. Um, I mean, I, 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 I don't know if this is like a valid kind of point or whatever, but um, I thought that there was a lot of similarity between Phoenix's fighting style and I forget his name. It's like Sacred, like Little Sacred Mask or something. It's like oh, little... Mascarita Sagrada. Yeah, 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 yeah. I love Mascarita Sagrada. Yeah, he yeah. is so cool. Yeah. He's so cool. Mascarita Sagrada, everybody, is a very famous, uh, they call them minis. Which uh, <laughs> sounds super not okay, but that's like that's actually what they're called in in lucha libre. He is uh, he's a a little person. He is phenomenally athletic. He sails through the air like uh, like a super ball. Like yeah. he seems to be able to bounce and just move through other people's I don't know like through their legs and like wrap around their bodies. And right. it's like he enters into their field of gravity and swings around them. Kind right, of it's, right, it's right. amazing. Yeah, and he also has a psychological advantage, too, because people tend to, like, make fun of him or not take him seriously because he's so small, and then he'll just come and just, like, demolish. When people face him, they just sort of, like, don't bring their best their best game because they think that they don't have to. Right. Uh, so he sort of plays on how drastically underestimated he's going to be by his opponents. So, in terms of an intimidation factor, Mil Muertes is imposing, Phoenix is not. Yeah. Mil Muertes is a tank... Phoenix is a fighter jet, Mm. right? But they have this opposition, life versus death, two different kinds of immortality, and sort of hanging between them is this 
psychopomp figure who yes. seems to be able to traverse the boundaries between life and death. Mm. And this fight seems to be over her mm. in a way. So I guess that's what it boils down to, right? Life versus death, immortality versus immortality, weirdly sexy, face-licking ghost lady <laughs> hanging in the balance. Not to sound too much like Matt Stryker. <laughs> but, yeah, it's definitely something that you wouldn't see watching Monday Night Raw on the right, USA right, Network right, right. before totally. Chris Lee Knows Best or whatever. <laughs> But yeah, we're we're gonna we're gonna start the match. Did you want to make any other sort of general points about Lucha Underground before we got started? I would like to assign, since we're in the conversation about the temple and there being this sort of like magical and archetypal like over thing, I would start to I would like to assign some like tarot cards to different characters and see how they interact. Okay. Starting with Dario Cueto being the devil. <laughs> And uh, uh, Katrina possibly being the high priestess. Okay, I don't know. I don't know uh, a damn thing about tarot, but I will trust your. <laughs> I'll trust your expertise, and I will mention that eventually the two of them sort of become become rivals. Mm. Uh, at the end Katrina? of Katrina and uh, and Dario Cueto, there's sort of okay. a, a power struggle between the two of them for control of the temple at one point. Oh wow. Okay, so we are now starting this match. Uh, everybody, if you want to follow along, you can just search Grave Consequences on YouTube. The fine folks at Lucha Underground have been nice enough to put the entire match up on YouTube for free. So the first image that we see here are these sort of uh, Dia de los Muertos spirits uh, bringing this casket with an airbrushed sugar skull on it to the ring, uh, the funerary box, if you will. <laughs> And it's more than uh, it's more than just set dressing, right? Because they have the casket. There are flowers. They all have bouquets. It's like an actual funeral here. Yeah. This is much more of an immersive experience. You know, the lights are down. And it looks like they're kind of circumambulating the ring. Yeah. They they drop the casket. Uh, at the, at the entrance to the ring, and now they're sort of just walking around, and they are disappearing back into the mist. Because they are... Uh, they will return at the end to claim the soul that has been placed right. inside the casket. These are also psychopomps of a sort. But they don't appear to have the same kind of agency that Katrina has. Right. Give me the volume off. What's that? Give me the volume. Yes, we're keeping the, We're going to keep the volume off so we can just sort of uh, uh, talk over it. Here's something that uh, Milmortes has his own stone, unusually. Right. Uh, Katrina usually carries it. Here's one thing, one complaint I have about Milmortes is his weird Homer Simpson pants. <laughs> 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 He's wearing, like, this this black leather mask with this metallic purple M on it. And he's wearing, like, like robin's egg blue <laughs> pinstripe tights. It's, it's sort of distracting from his, his overall look. He eventually gets better, better gear. And now we, have, uh, now we have Phoenix, 
who is much more animated. It's also interesting that Phoenix has seems to have a different costume every fight. Yeah. And in this case, specifically, sometimes it's very significant. In this case, he's wearing black tights with flames on them. Right. So perhaps Phoenix is trying to tell us that he intends to be a light in the darkness. Mm. And Milmartes <laughs> immediately just dives through the ropes. Before he even gets to the ring. Before he even gets to the ring and just starts beating this poor kid to death. He slams him into the announcer's table, and now he's just chopping him uh, and beating him pillar to post. Something that I find interesting about Mil Muertes is that you feel like he's bigger than he is. I think, right. I think he's only about 5'10". He feels like he's 6'5". Right. It has everything to do with his attitude and his presentation. Right. But I think Phoenix is like an inch or two taller than him. Right. Really? Yeah, I mean, if you, if you look at the two of them, Phoenix is actually a little bit taller. Despite the fact that uh, Mil Mortes is much, much thicker and more muscular. Right. Uh, one thing that I like about Lucha Underground, and Phoenix in particular, is that he doesn't have an unrealistic physique that you right. see in a lot of uh, right, right, in a lot right. of wrestlers. He's kind of got a little bit of a spare tire, but he's still this amazing athlete, uh, despite the fact that he just missed the drop kick. <laughs> <laughs> and they miss, they miss hits a lot. Yeah. So now... We've sort of uh, reset a little bit. Phoenix is in the ring, and Milmertes has fallen out to the floor. And he's now going to try to execute his own dive, which he does spectacularly, and he knocks Milmertes to the ground. And we're sort of back at square one at this point. And <clears throat> something that I notice a lot um, with Phoenix is that they often describe his moves as sacrifices. Yeah, they talk about how like he doesn't, like he he does he's not having regard for his body because he's willing to do these things that would potentially harm him as well. Right. In order to win the fight. It's interesting that they describe it as a sacrifice. Yeah, well, because everything here in the temple is a sacrifice, but especially Phoenix, whose uh, fighting style is very high risk. They never they never really describe a sa- exactly what's going on, but I always kind of feel like maybe Bill oh, <laughs> <and then> Martins <laughs> just hit him with a bouquet of funeral flowers, which is just nasty. Now, I just noticed this. But again, hitting him with those—you got to think the the uh, the thorns are still on those roses, right? Yeah. You're not going to hit a guy with a bouquet of roses that have been de <laughs> if you're Mil Muertes. But you get the sense that in uh, in Lucha Underground, the fighting that they're doing is uh, <laughs> Phoenix just drops Mil Muertes' head right into that casket and dents it. It kind of feels like, uh, do you remember in Dragon Ball Z, when Goku and Vegeta were fighting, and the energy that they expended was uh, returning Majin Buu to life? Yes. So I kind of get that feeling here, in a very sort of long con way. Oh! Oh my god. That looked real, too. I mean, he really hit that casket. Yeah, you can't fake that. So what we just saw was Phoenix attempt to do another high-risk move, leaping out of the ring at Mil Muertes, who sort of just casually flicked this casket up and forced Phoenix to smash his face into it, and he just crashed and burned it. It looked great and terrible at the same time. And now Mil Muertes is literally tearing Phoenix's mask, which is twofold. One, the mask is sacred to the luchador. Like, right. this is his identity. This right. is his public face. So to have it torn and to expose the man underneath is uh, 
it signifies that this is incredibly high stakes. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> yeah, we've just seen Mil Muertes take apart the turnbuckle, and he's now just going to attack Phoenix with this metal hook that holds the ring together. So we have long since passed the point where this is any kind of wrestling match. This is just like a battle to the death. He essentially just brained Phoenix with that, uh, with that metal hook and then licked it, possibly in a reference to what Katrina does, maybe just right, to be a right, creep. Right. And Phoenix is now bleeding. Is that real blood? That is, that is real blood from his human head, yes. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is the first time I've seen someone really bleed. Oh, whoa. Yeah, again, the hook to the dome. Um, I wanted to bring this up before uh, before we started Phoenix. And that's more blood. That is more blood, yeah. And before, and now Mil Muertes is biting Phoenix's open wound. <laughs> this is a, a very, very rough match to watch, everybody. I should have mentioned, if you have a hard time with blood, maybe don't watch Grave Consequences. <laughs> it's very nasty. But one thing I wanted to mention is that uh, Phoenix had a, a mask that was half his own face, and the right. other half was mimicking the seal. Right. The seal of the temple. Right. Which, again, I'm not sure what exactly he's trying to say, but it seems important. Now, uh, oh. now he is dragging Phoenix up the stairs, these concrete stairs of the temple, and just literally throwing him into, uh, into the steel railing. At this point, oh. he's just been, Phoenix has just been thrown into a, a ladder and now over a, over a little fence. Phoenix is essentially uh, barely moving at this point. And like hurt in real life. Yeah, and hurt in real life. Yeah, he's bleeding real human blood. Now, Mil Muertes has just pointed off of this balcony and he's telling people, he's signaling to the, the believers oh, to get out of the shit. way because he intends to essentially throw Phoenix to his death. <laughs> But Phoenix kind of goes boneless here to avoid being thrown. Um, this appears to be... And now Phoenix is going to attempt to throw Mil Muertes to his death. One of his deaths. One of his 1,000 deaths. And... <laughs> and Mil Muertes oh, has thrown Phoenix into an HVAC unit. <laughs> and he's just sort of rolled off the stage back into the stands. And now he's rolling down the bleachers. So this is just... Uh, and he has blood all over his hands, too. And there's blood all over Mil Muertes. Yeah, blood all over Mil Muertes. Not his own blood, of course. Right. Um, which I guess, maybe, would be the one reason that if you're Mil Muertes, you would wear the blue so people could see their own blood on you. That's got to be a psychological uh, weapon in your arsenal. So now he is throwing Phoenix directly, oh, on, <laughs> directly onto the announcer's table. This is less a match than it is just a massacre at this point. So at this point, it seems like we have our answer about which kind of immortality is superior. It right. seems like, it seems like Mil Muertes, his ability to not get knocked down appears to have an advantage over Phoenix's ability to get back up. He keeps getting back up but he's not getting back up fast enough. Right. He can't recover fast and enough. He's not laying any blows. Right. He hasn't hit... I mean, he's managed to escape Mil Muertes a couple of times, and he hit a few big moves, but it hasn't been enough to keep Mil Muertes down for any appreciable amount of time. So now Mil has taken the casket into the ring, and he's setting it up in the corner. 
and Phoenix has crawled back into the ring. Blood splattered all over. <laughs> yeah, blood splattered everywhere. Uh, not giving up. He's still uh, he's still attacking Mil Muertes. You can see here when they're standing next to each other that Phoenix is actually a little bit taller. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. He just attempted to... Uh, he threw Mill against the casket and tried to kind of sandwich Mill between himself and the casket. Mill, Mill caught him and threw him directly into the casket again. This casket is very badly damaged at this point. And Phoenix is covered in blood. Yeah, Phoenix is also very badly damaged. And again, Mill Muertes is biting... Phoenix's uh, open wounds <laughs> and just he's raises his arms up and he's essentially exulting here like he's kind of I think we're supposed to read this as him taking ownership of the temple right this sort of sacrifice is for him he's taking ownership of all of this violence And Phoenix sort of comes back to life and manages to land a big kick on Mil Muertes and knock him to the ground. And he's climbing up. High risk is the only thing that's worked so far. And... Ah! That's why they call it high risk. Phoenix had climbed up to try to hit another big flying move. Mil Muertes climbed up and essentially dragged him to his death on the ground. So now you can see there's actual human blood all over this, uh, yeah. all over the mat at this point, all over the seal. Like this is the most literal blood. Oh shit! Yeah, he's pouring blood. This is a very literal blood sacrifice that we are witnessing at this point. And he's removing. He's pulling the casket back out to the floor. Oh shit! I know this is this is amazing. The only thing is that he can't press his advantage. He can't just keep beating Phoenix because he has to keep moving the casket. Right. So he doesn't have the advantage of being able to... You know, if this were a regular match, he could just keep on top of Phoenix. Right. But he has to keep opening the casket and dragging the casket and trying to set it up in order to, uh, in order to win the match. So the match favors Phoenix insofar as Mil Muertes has to give him time to recover at least a little bit. And now they're in the audience. Now they're in the audience again, among the believers. Oh. Ooh. <laughs> he just casually threw a wooden chair at him. <laughs> and just, you gotta love these people who are just sort of politely getting out of the way as a man is being <laughs> murdered in front of them. And... Phoenix was able to take advantage there and actually get out of the way and kick Mill so that he fell over a railing. And now he's got a minute to breathe. Finally. And he gets back to his feet and leaps off a balcony. Knocking Mill to his feet, or off his feet. And we're seeing a crowd reaction. All the believers are loving this, chanting, Lucha, Lucha, Lucha. <laughs> Phoenix uh, throws the flowers at Mil Muertes again. 
or I guess last time it was moving yeah. through the flowers at Phoenix. Ah, and Phoenix builds a little bit of momentum and just immediately gets shit canned again and thrown into a wall this time. It's like, ooh, ooh. <laughs> yeah, just having his entire head and face thrown into this steel railing. It's like Mil Huertes is making it his job to kill Phoenix with every single part of this building. Like, not Ooh. not just his own fists, but just throwing him and sort of grinding him against every surface in the temple. Again, another high-risk move. Another, another high-risk move. It's really all he has. He can't fight Mil Muertes man-to-man. He can't throw hands with Mil Muertes. Right. So he's got to keep sacrificing, to use the terminology of the, that the announcers use. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice to build any kind of momentum against this monster. But the question has to be, is it worth it? Because you can hurt Mil Muertes, but not too much. Right. He keeps getting back up. Um, I think it's also worth noting that Katrina has essentially stayed neutral. She came out with right. Phoenix, but she's not interfering in any way. Oh! And Mil Muertes, I timed that perfectly. As I was saying that, Mil Muertes went to hit Phoenix, and he missed and bowled over Katrina. Ooh! And Phoenix has now kicked Mil Muertes in the back of the head. So, this is going to be a turning point in the match. Uh, Mil Muertes, after striking Katrina, starts to show a little bit of mortality. All right. Um... So, it seems that whatever her relationship is with him, whatever both of their relationships are with death, it seems like by attacking her, even if inadvertently, he has... Like, broken some of the spell. Yeah, he's broken some of the spell. And now, all of a sudden... He seems exhausted. He hasn't seemed exhausted at any point until now. Right. Now they both seem like just regular people. And Katrina now opens, opens the, the casket. casket. For whom, though? They're both struggling. Right. We don't know... Whoever falls in first. Whoever whoever falls in first. She's neutral, maybe. I mean, maybe. he could just kick him in the face right now. Ooh, and he does exactly <laughs> that. He did exactly that. And now here's Mil Muertes, staggered. Once again, Phoenix goes up to the top rope. For more high risk, jumps in the air. Boom! Oh, (laughs) shit. Stomps Mil Muertes in the back of the head. Katrina retrieves the stone. Licks the stone. Close the fucking back. Ooh! (laughs) (laughs) And that's it. That is the end of the match. And she slams her hand on the lid of the casket. And... And look at the look on her face. She knows exactly what she just did. So, Phoenix is exulting in the ring. He is just flipping out, basically because he survived. I mean, Phoenix didn't win. He survived. Right. And now we have the, uh, the return of the, uh, of the spirits of the dead. And I guess it's some kind of trade-off, right? Because Katrina essentially takes her hand off the casket and allows the spirits to uh, to take the casket with them. Phoenix is just 
screaming in uh, elation because he has survived, but Katrina leaves with the casket. Mm-hmm. You know, you might think that uh, that's the end. Of, that's the end of the match, everybody. But you might think from the end there that she's sided with. Uh, she's Phoenix, sided with yeah. Phoenix. She's sided with life, right? But she doesn't stay to celebrate with him. She leaves with the casket, right? So, spoiler alert: this is the first match in a trilogy of epic matches between Mil Mortes and Phoenix. Okay. So I'm not gonna um, I'm not gonna spoil the first in a trilogy. The first in a trilogy, which sort of implies that Mil Mortes isn't dead. Or is he super dead? Okay. Who's to say? Okay. No spoilers. Um, he does... Well, it's not a spoiler to say that he has been taken to the land of the dead. Right. right? We just saw his physical form and his spirit being ferried to right. the, the land of the dead by this sort of army of spirits and also Katrina with whom he has some type of special relationship. We know that he came back from the dead once. Or came back right. from near death once. Right. So but, then Katrina, and through Katrina's sort of uh, agency, so Katrina following the um, casket sort of implies that if she's done it once, she could do it again. Right. Right. So the question now is why did Katrina do this? Why did Katrina side with Phoenix? Why did Katrina seal away Mil Muertes in the casket if she was intending to leave with him? Right. So. They set up a lot of questions. There's a lot of unanswered questions that happen right. here. There's a lot of unanswered questions with Lucha Underground, period. But this match especially. Mm. Okay, so that that was Grave Consequences. What did you think of Grave Consequences? Um, I mean, I, I definitely wasn't, accept, I wasn't expecting there to be that much bloodshed. <laughs> I wasn't expecting there to be actual people actually getting hurt. But also, I think that... It just sort of set up a whole nother like level and layer to the mystery of the temple. It was like, as you said before, like a literal blood sacrifice. And the entire match sort of existed on this kind of liminal space between life and death. Uh, I also wasn't expecting um, Phoenix to end up winning the match. Because for most of it, it seemed as if Mil Muertes was just like destroying Phoenix and he was barely even laying any blows. It wasn't until the very end that Phoenix proverbially rose from the ashes, as he does and was able to get Mil Mortis to, like, in some sense, like, betray his own power. Because yes. in, in a way, he, like, sort of tricked him, tricked him into attacking Katrina inadvertently. Right. And that was kind of his ultimate downfall. So then it sort of begs the question, like, is Katrina actually... Is, is Mil Mortis' immortality not actually his own, but it's the grace of Katrina? And so, and what even is, like, his relationship to Katrina in that Katrina, it's sort of like, you know, this sort of, like, I give you life and I can take it away if I want it to. Right. Are they partners? Right. Right. Is she, is he essentially, like, uh, a, a henchman, essentially, that she has summoned to do her bidding? Right. Who is it? Because initially when you see them, you get the, you get the sense that she is his manager. Like, right. Like, he is the threat. And she is there to support him. Right. But then as we see more, those waters get very muddied. Because she appears to be at least as powerful as he is. Maybe not physically, but spiritually. Right. right. And she apparently has the ability to use that stone, which is some type of talisman, against him. To right. manipulate his immortality, 
his connection to the afterlife against him. Right. And to sort of remind him that his apparent power is borrowed power. Yes. And there's no sense, there's no sense of that with Phoenix. Mm. There's no equivalent being who right. bestows the power to keep coming back from the brink of death to Phoenix. Right. That appears to be inborn <clears throat> to Phoenix, where Mil Muertes is definitely borrowing something from somewhere. Right. Is, is Katrina the entity who's granting him that? Is she the conduit through which he's granted that? Right, That's right, all right. unclear. But what is clear is that if you're talking about how much power Mil Muertes actually has... It depends entirely on Katrina. Yeah, and it, there seems to be this dichotomy between like ascending and descending power, where um, Phoenix is represents the sort of like path of ascent, where he's sort of like building himself up over time and through experience to becoming a better and better fighter. Whereas Mil Mortis is sort of like descending from the other side with this vested power that is now apparently seen to be like borrowed power, and it's sort of like uh, at any point in time he can be sort of like drawn back, drawn drawn back up to uh, the other side. And so it's like, it's like he's on steroids, but like worse than steroids. It's like supernatural <laughs> Super, steroids. Supernatural spiritual it's, it's <laughs> steroids for the soul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, again, we're, we were talking about Dragon Ball Z before, right? So there's a little bit of Majin Vegeta here. Right. Right? So he's given up a part of himself to an outside force to get the power that he that he needs in order to accomplish his goals. Right. And just like, uh, just like I talk about Dragon Ball a lot on this show, <laughs> but, but in this case, spoilers, if you haven't seen the Majin Buu saga, which came out like 25 years ago, but Majin Vegeta or Vegeta, uh, gives a portion of his soul away to the wizard Babidi, who gives him the power to defeat Goku, who he's been trying to defeat for, I guess like 20 years at this point. Right. Right. And he's able to beat Goku using this borrowed power. But then he finds out later that Goku actually had the ability to turn Super Saiyan 3 the whole time and just didn't. Mm. So had Goku chosen to do that, he would have destroyed Vegeta right. instantly. Right. So we get the sense that true power is power which is, which is learned and acquired and developed over time. Mm. Uh, true power can not be borrowed or bought. Because it's not yours, mm. right? You only have temporary ownership of it, right. and it can be taken away at any time. Right. Yeah, we talked a little about the brutality of this. I mean, it was it was really there were parts of it that were really grotesque. Yeah, like Mil Muertes biting Phoenix's head, sort of spitting blood out. Right. It was. It was See, nasty. Yeah, seeing um, seeing Phoenix uh, lying there, sort of like shaking on the. Uh, ring and blood pouring out of his head onto the mat. Onto the so, seal? Yeah. Yeah, like, like a faucet of blood, too. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, this is, uh, you know, they what they do is they, they have concealed razor blades. Okay. And they will they'll make a small incision in their forehead. Yeah. And because of their, uh, because of the adrenaline and because of how, uh, how fast their hearts are beating, the blood essentially pumps out. Mm -hmm. So it, it the, the, the phrase is the proverbial crimson mask. Mm-hmm. So the blood isn't from the blows. The blood is like. Well, the the blood is uh, is implied to be yeah. from the blows in uh, in the fiction. It's from the blows. Okay. In the fiction, Phoenix was lacerated by the the hook that right, Mortez right, right, hit right. him with. In reality, behind the curtain, Phoenix uh, probably he, you know he has taped fingers. He probably had a small piece of uh, mm. of razor blade in like his thumb and basically just 
Okay. I, this is very bad radio. I'm like miming, <laughs> doing like I don't know what you call that, like the the sort of Bruce Lee thumb to the nose gesture, <laughs> but like to the forehead, just like yeah. a little bit of a little flick. Okay. And that's and that's all it takes. Okay. That's all it takes. And then when you're in this, uh, there are there were guys back in the day when they were trying to get over like a real real blood and guts rivalry and trying to make it look really really grotesque and uh, and and violent people would actually take blood thinners so that they would bleed more. I see. Which okay. uh, that's not a thing that happens these days. That's a right. little bit a uh, little bit verboten nowadays. Uh, now that we have corporate sponsorship and uh, and that's another thing. You won't see anything like this on uh, on mainstream American wrestling. Right. Certainly not in the, in in WWE. You might see every couple of years a match with a little trickle of blood, but nothing like this. Right. Nothing like this, which just serves to set Lucha Underground apart as a place where things are just so much more visceral, literally visceral. There, right. were, there were blood and guts. There were right. viscera. Right, <laughs> right. splattered everywhere. Right. You definitely never imagined that this was part of sort of the, the, uh, the tapestry that is pro wrestling, I imagine. Yeah, no, not at all. Um, not at all. I find uh, it's also interesting um, in terms of the backstories if I'm not mistaken about Phoenix's backstory, um, he was like from the barrio, and uh, I think for a number of wrestlers, there's this narrative that they were like street kids that were very violent, were on the street, and they were violent because they actually have the blood of like Aztec warriors. Yes, yes, um, that's that's one of the long term sort of story arcs is the uh, the twelve ancient tribes, the right. twelve ancient Aztec tribes, right, and uh, each of them has sort of a totem. Right. Animal. And Phoenix is one of them. Right. He has this Aztec blood in him that drives him to... Uh, he has this warrior soul. Right. That was that was unable to find expression right. in our modern world. Right. And it drove him to sort of criminality and, uh, and I guess, hooliganism. Yeah. But it finds, it finds expression and it finds glory here in the yeah, temple. Yeah, being channeled through this sort of martial art, uh, which I think is, it is a common theme in a lot of different cultures where there is some kind of... Uh, like martial tradition that is also in some sense spiritual, whereas this idea that um, there is this like inherent uh, archetypal warriorship and right. also this sort of like violent energy uh, that oftentimes men, but not always men, uh, carry, and that there is like a way to channel it and to discipline it and also to introduce it to some kind of higher sense of integrity and like honor and these sorts of things. Bushido, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's particularly fascinating that. Um, uh, you have this this narrative of like the twelve tribes, um, where these sort of street kids get these trainings so that they can actualize their essential like warriorship. Right. Um, and there's like this underlying unspoken but necessary like aspect to the story where it's like the reason why they're not following the track that their culture built for them was because of colonialism. Yes. Right. And it's because of colonialism that the conditions of poverty that they were living under um, exist as well. So it's like. This kind of this, this almost like uh, tale of redemption in a way, um, and then the temple is this sort of like new, like this temple has its roots like in the underworld, right? right? Hence, like underground, right? Uh, both like the material underworld of um, sort of like uh, the 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 afterlife of colonialism, but then also. Uh, this sort of, like, seed of... This sort of, like, cesspool of, like, crime and trauma. And it offers this way out through 
this like development of the, the warrior into like a type of hero, like a hero's journey. Um, that each of these different like uh, uh, these different wrestlers are on, um, and then the material symbol of that sort of ascent is like the money that's uh, um, gained through the fights. Uh, and there's something about uh, quite literally like returning to the temple. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the symbol at the center. I think it's interesting that you mentioned colonialism because Dario Cueto is explicitly Spanish. Right, right. He's not, uh, he's not native, he's not mestizo. He's specifically from right. Spain. Right. So that adds an interesting, uh, an interesting wrinkle. Right, right. And I think that that adds like a really uh, crucial dimension to this sort of like return to the ancestral temple because, like I said before, I think that Dario Cueto is definitely like a devil type of figure. Oh, yeah. Um, and he's sort of, like, holding these keys to the underworld, both holding the keys, the gate in and the gate out. And it's creating this, it's like, fight your way out, basically, but, like, you're fighting other people, like, you're fighting your own. Right. And here comes, like, the Spanish figure that's, like, watching over it and sort of, like, uh, determining who gets what, where, um, and setting up the matches and everything. In many ways, it's, like, a way out, but not really a way out. It's just like it's it's like the the promise is a form of glamour, um, but the glamour is not the substance that it pretends itself to be. In any way, it's not like actual liberation. The promise of liberation, as a result of taking out your rage and aggression on each other. Right, and at the end of the day, Dario Cueto is the one in control of the temple. Right. So he is the one that, uh, assumedly, these sacrifices are being performed in his name. Right. So at the end, he's the ultimate beneficiary of all of this violence. Right. Because not only in the narrative is he getting, he's getting the money for all these people who are showing right, up right, to right, pay, right, right. but also whatever sort of supernatural or metaphysical clout he's building up because of these repeated sacrifices right. would it's appear to be, to him, yeah, yeah it's, it's all for him. He's the person, he's the high priest, right, who's right. actually uh, doing the bloodletting at the top of the pyramid. Yeah, and, and it's really interesting as far as, like, spiritual power is concerned, because in the episode where Johnny Bundo comes to his office and asks for a fight with, I think, um, King Cuerno, mm-hmm. and basically says, like, when I'm done with him, you're next, uh-huh. you know, and you see that, like, gulp, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> like a cartoon gulp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's really fascinating, because it's like, you know, he has all this money, he has all this spiritual power, but, like, physically he's not, you know, he's, like, dealing with all these really tough guys, but, like, he couldn't take any of them on. Right. Right? So... It's like where he get where does he get this sense of uh, like fearlessness and confidence to be like moving around these people like pawns when at any point in time any one of them could just come and just demolish them. So would you say would you say at this point that you're a wrestling fan? Yeah. Does it feel strange to say that? No, I mean I wouldn't have ex- I, I didn't see it coming, but uh-huh. yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I like this particularly Lucha Underground a lot. Um, and I'm only, like, six episodes in, but I'm it looking gets good. forward to, like, really uh, sort of, like, digging through the layers of the upcoming um, episodes. All right, all right. Well, I have, uh, I have one more question for you, yeah. Julian, and this is what I ask all of my guests. Okay. If you were going to be a wrestler, <laughs> what would your character be? 
Oh, man. Um, <laughs> well, I guess, like, in terms of fighting style, I really like the fighting style of, like, Phoenix, uh, uh, the little mask guy. Um, Mascarita, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and Puma. Like, I like the very sort of, like, acrobatic aerial stuff more than just brute strength. Yep. Uh, and just, like, physically, I'm not, like, this enormous person, so that's, like, more <laughs> than... <laughs> that's, like, more achievable if I were to ever decide to go into pro wrestling. As far as, like animal totems or something you're concerned i think i would go with the snake tribe i'd be a serpent okay i'd go with the servant tribe i'd have a similar kind of like aerial but i guess i would have to be like slithery <laughs> slithering through the air yeah 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 sky snake yeah um well there are flying snakes true i mean those are basically dragons right well, I meant like real flying snakes. They have like <laughs> <laughs> they have like it's kind of like a flying squirrel. They have like flaps of skin. Okay. I think I'm not making this up. Shit, I hope I'm not making this up. I hope <laughs> I'm not like digging deep to some cryptozoology book I read when I was ten years old. I think they're. I think they just like sail. Maybe I'm thinking of like lizards. I don't know. Okay. You could be the feathered serpent. Yeah. Right. Like so you're yeah, so the winged serpent. The winged serpent. Yeah. Yeah, I dig it. I dig it. You are living under the ring. Waiting for enough blood. Yes. I'm waiting exactly. for enough blood. And then you just erupt out. Out from the seal. Right. And just like. And you eat Dario Cueto. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. Mortal, Mortal Kombat style. Yeah. Like, like Liu Kang, just sort of anamorph into a Why does he have, like, Mil Muertes' name right, on right, 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 right. What was Mil Muertes doing before he got invited to the temple? Right. <laughs> was he just sitting at home on his couch in his sweats, <laughs> like, eating a ham sandwich, waiting for that call to come through? 